0: various churches, and I thank you for the warm welcome that you've uh, provided for me here this morning. Thank you so much. I just want to echo what um, your, uh, I think, head elder, Brother Afif, shared this morning. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, my, my parents used to talk about the work. Have you ever heard about the work? The work was the gospel work, and uh, they laid out for us, well, you can either be a missionary or a physician somewhere or a nurse or a Bible worker, or a pastor, but it was always pointed out to us that the work is the highest calling anyone can answer. And I want to emphasize again that, um, you know, it's not just happening in Illinois. In in North American division, perhaps half the pastors are due to retire in the next ten years. Uh, That's more than a couple of thousand of pastoral families retiring, and there is almost nobody to replace them. uh, The pipeline is drying up. And so if you're a young person and you're sensing God's call to ministry, don't say no. Say as Samuel did, hear my Lord. And if you're in the middle of life and you sense God's calling to pastoral ministry, um, there's a pathway at the seminary and you enter pastoral ministry and you do a distance learning program. But if you have spiritual gifts and sense God's calling, don't say there's no place for me in pastoral ministry. I can assure you that there's no greater joy in life and serving as a pastor. It's, it's a wonderful, incredible experience. Uh, you get to walk with people through the highs and lows of life. You get to be there at the deaths, and at the weddings, and the funerals, and the births, and the dedications. And it's an incredible privilege to journey with people through the, uh, the highs and lows of life. So, um, I just want to put that out there. If you sense God's call to ministry, and don't say, I'm too old, or I'm too young, Um, Ask why God would have you serve, and um, maybe pray about it, and uh, ask the conference how you can, what what is the pathway for you to serve? Uh, There is no greater calling than to be a pastor or family in ministry. So, with that kind of um, to one side, uh, we're going to be talking today, our sermon is entitled Deliver Us From Evil, and uh, as we open God's Word, I invite you to bow your heads with me, and we will invite God's presence. So shall we pray? Dear Father, I I thank you for the privilege to stand in this pulpit this morning. I thank you for this congregation. God, I thank you that the good work you've begun in everybody's lives within these four walls that you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that you are shaping us day by day. You are providing for us. You are protecting us. You are leading us. And were our entire life stories to be known, Father, we would sit here in amazement at your mercy and your grace in each of our lives, in the most intimate of ways. Father, we're asking you this morning that we will hear your voice speak to our hearts today. God, there are many voices in this world today. I ask that it be the voice of Jesus alone that we hear this morning. I ask, Father, that you speak through me and for me. In the name of Jesus, I ask. Amen. Uh, Last September, I was uh, in the Philippines. Um, I was in an island called Palawan. Uh, up in the highlands of the the island of Palawan, uh, where there are some uh, AFM missionaries. And uh, when I was up there, I soon noticed that there was this um, incessant banging of drums going on in the background. And I asked around, I said, what's that banging of drums up here in the mountains? And it went night and day, 24-7, boom, 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 the banging of drums. And uh, my colleague said, well, um, they have guys on the mountaintops with large kettle drums and rice harvest is coming, and they are calling in the spirits. They are calling in the spirits to guarantee a good harvest. And after a while, because the banging of the drums is, let's say, about 65 beats per minute, you find that your own heartbeat starts beating in rhythm with the drums that are going around you. And after a while, you find you don't even notice the drums banging, even though they're banging on day after day after day, because the banging just kind of enters, uh, the beat of the drums enters your very being, and And after a while, it just becomes part of who you are. And up in that part of the Philippines, um, when you go to the market on the Sunday, there is a very popular um, entertainment, and it is this. Somebody invites a spirit to take possession of them. And when the spirit takes possession of them, then all the the guys gather around, and they start betting, because if betting is very popular in the Philippines, you bet on cockfighting or dogfighting or on spirit possession. And when people bet, the betting goes like this. How many men does it take to subdue the demon-possessed man? And it may take 10 guys or 12 guys or 15 guys to hold down a demon-possessed man. And you can go to the markets in Palawan on a Sunday afternoon, and when everybody's bought their stuff, um, then you see a bunch of guys gathering in a circle, and you know what is about to happen. There is a man about to receive supernatural power, superhuman power, and then he will be jumped on by more and more and more guys. And everybody's on betting on how many guys it's going to take to hold this guy to the ground. And you can see this happening in front of your very eyes. And I was watching this stuff happen. And as I came out of the mountains a few days later, um, after seeing this, um, I sat in uh, my colleague's house down in the lowlands. And I, was, I opened up my computer and I was, uh, opened up my email. And uh, it suddenly felt like there was an elephant sitting on my shoulders. Now, if you've had a heart attack you probably know something about what I'm saying. It felt like there was a set of hands around my chest, squeezing and squeezing and squeezing and squeezing, and I was uh, uh, losing my breath, and it felt like there was an elephant sitting on my shoulders, and it was incredibly painful, and, and I was sitting there, and uh, my colleague kind of looked at me, and he said, are you okay? I said, uh, yes, you know, stiff upper lip and all that. Yes, I'm okay, and uh, a few seconds later, I kind of sank to the floor beside me, looked around at me, and he said, are you sure you're okay? And I went, yes. And I was gasping for breath. And um, he looked down at me and he said, uh, you don't look okay to me. And I went, Ugh, like this. And <clears throat> um, it's very funny with hindsight. It wasn't funny at the time. It felt like there were these hands just squeezing around my chest. And I was forced to the ground. And he said, let's get you to the hospital. So he kind of hoisted me onto his shoulders and he dragged me to the car. And I went to the car and we went to the public hospital, which was 100 yards away. And we walked in and there was a long queue of people waiting to be seen. And he said, uh, he said to the, the, the nurse who was standing there, he said, this guy is dying, get him to ER. And she says, join the queue. And he said, this guy is dying, can't you see? He's, he's going blue with lack of oxygen. Get him to the ER. And the nurse says, join the queue. So um, he put me back in the car and we drove another mile into a private hospital. And he said, we're not messing around this time. We walked into the hospital and he was kind of dragging me and we found this door that said pediatrician. So we just kind of walked into the door with a pediatrician, and there was a, a pediatrician there, and there was a mother with her child, and uh, my missionary friend said in the local language, like, op it, and like, off you go. And the mother hopped out with her child, and I kind of sprawled on the couch in front of the pediatrician, and my friend says, treat him. Um, you know, There were no questions about health insurance or anything out there. It was a very direct process, I can assure you. And the pediatrician looked at me and she put a stethoscope on my chest and she started yelling something um, to some nurses. And before I knew it, I was lying on this couch and they'd snipped off my t shirt. And the pediatrician says, We're going to do an EKG on you. I said, Fine. And I was gasping for breath. And my chest felt like it was being constricted. And um, so then uh, I was lying on my back and this nurse's face appeared in front of me like this. And she started putting these electrodes on my arm and across my chest. And I was like, and and, and she started this conversation. How do you feel? Uh, Well, are you in pain? And uh, then she says, are you married? Uh, Yes. (coughs) And she says, marry me. I said, I'm married. She says, no, no, take me back to America with you. I said, no, I'm married. So having overcome that particular medical inquiry, um, my left hand was hanging off the couch, And uh, uh, another nurse came to my other side and she started putting electrodes at my left arm, at my chest, and and I heard this voice from the left. She says, I'm pretty and marry me, Uh, at which point I started to recover. I said, just do the EKG. Well, they did the EKG and uh, the the pediatrician came and looked at me and she says, well, she says, I don't know what's wrong with you, she says, something's going wrong. She says, I'll just give you pain medication, a really strong pain medication, and you can go home. I said, I don't want pain medication. I wonder what's going on with me. And um, I smile about it now at the time. It wasn't particularly pleasant. It was painful and kind of scary. And uh, so um, I went to the, the uh, pharmacist, and I showed them my prescription. And she said, oh, very strong, very strong pain medication. I said, well, I don't want this. So um, I went back with my friend to his house, and I came back to America a few days later. And I went into the, the doctors, and they put me through a battery of tests. And they said, there was absolutely nothing wrong with you. Your heart is healthy. There's nothing wrong with you. I said," "So what did happen? They said there was no evidence of anything happening to you. I said, "Well, um, did I have a heart attack?" They said, "No. Uh, did I have um, anything with my lungs?" They said, "No." And there's nothing wrong with you, sir. You just go home." So I felt kind of st- uh, silly, leaving the doctors in Berrien Springs, and um, I went home. And I was chatting with my missionary friend about this. And he said, well, you know, this happens quite often to Christians who come up into the highlands. Whenever the spirits are being invited into the highlands, the Christians get attacked in this way. And uh, my mind went back to many years ago in, in Azerbaijan, where when I first got there in 95, um, I was lying on the bed on my first morning in this uh, Muslim part of the world. And this happens quite a lot to missionaries. I woke up in the morning... And there was this pressure on my chest. It was a pressure that is very hard to explain, but I was lying in my bed. It felt like I was a turtle that had been placed on its back. And my, my arms were waving and my legs were trying to get up and nothing was moving. And there was this pressure on my chest. It was holding me down. And it wasn't a, like a hand holding me down. It was just this pressure holding me on the bed. And um, I started crying out in the name of Jesus. And gradually that pressure evaporated and I was able to get up. We ask ourselves, what is going on in situations like this? And part of the challenge we face as Western Christians is that our worldview, and we were discussing worldview this morning, has been shaped by the Renaissance, by the Reformation, by the Enlightenment. And in our Western worldview, we have this scientific approach to life which assumes that there is no reality beyond the natural material universe. If something cannot be measured, it does not exist. That's our Western approach to life. If something cannot be measured, then it does not exist. And this uh, philosophy in the West, this material philosophy that we all live in a material world, has directly impacted Western Christianity. One of the most famous theologians in Britain in the 1930s and 40s was a guy called William Barclay. Maybe you have some of his books on your bookshelf at home. He wrote some incredible commentaries on the book of Romans and Corinthians. Well, When he discussed Jesus' casting out of demons, he said that these stories tell us that Jesus came to to deliver us from pain and suffering. Well, that is true to some extent, but he's missing the point of those stories. The point of those stories in the Gospels is not to say that Jesus came to deliver us from from suffering and pain, but Jesus came to deliver us from demonic harassment. And for most mainstream theologians today, the concept of the demonic in the life of the Christian is a passé concept. It's kind of, we consign that to the superstitions of the past. And so, for many Western Christians today, the idea that Satan is attacking Christians today, or say, Christians may experience demonic harassment, is something a that we never talk about, and b we think if we do talk about, people will think we're a fruitcake, and they may get us put into a mental hospital. And the, the tragedy is that while we as Western Christians put the idea of the demonic to one side, like we don't talk about these things, the reality is if you go to Barnes and Noble and look at the spirituality section, our Western material worldview. People in a Western society are buying books on all kinds of topics to do with the occult. The occult is growing in America at a rapid rate. People are buying into the occult because it delivers two benefits, knowledge and power without moral responsibility. And so the occult is exploding here in America, and people are getting involved with tarot cards, or they go to a channeling session. They may visit someone who claims to have intuition. Um, they may get involved in SRA, known as Satanic Ritual Abuse, the abuse of children or sacrifice of animals. Um, they, they, um, have, they get involved in astrology. There's all kinds of things that our neighbours here in Downers Grove are getting involved in. Rational, material Westerners are diving headfirst into the occult, and you cannot watch TV for more than a few hours before you come across Im- um, um, images or occultic um, or images or themes from the occult. And so, today I want to talk about, as as Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil, the reality that Christians today and Seventh-day Adventists are under satanic attack, and and when I hear people saying, Pastor, when do you think the time of trouble is going to come? I say, for most Christians, it's already here in one form or another. Whether you're experiencing depression or divorce or discouragement or disease, people are already going through times of trouble. So what does the Bible teach us about the attacks of Satan on God's people? Well, the first thing I would say to you this morning is, it is a fatal misconception to assume that God's people are not the object of Satan's attacks. On the contrary, the, te- the Scriptures teach us that it is precisely God's people who are the object of Satan's attacks. of well, the most famous verses in Adventism is Revelation 12, 17. And Satan was wroth with the woman and went off to make war with the remnant of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. And we focus on the second half of that verse, the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus, and we tend to forget the first half of the verse, which is that Satan makes war with the remnant of God's children. So if you seek to keep the commandments of God, you are the object of Satan's attacks. And it is no point pretending and saying, well, because I'm a Christian, therefore Satan will not or cannot attack me. The opposite is revealed in Scripture. Precisely because I am a follower of Jesus Christ, I am a front to Satan and his kingdom, an affront, and therefore Satan wants to destroy me. The most famous example of somebody in Scripture who was attacked by Satan is Job. Now, Job didn't know it at the time when Satan was attacking him, but in Job chapter 1 Job chapter 2, we see that God gave permission to Satan personally to attack Job, and it was kind of a test. You know, is Job going to be true to God in the good times? Or is Job, does Job love God regardless of whether there are good times or there are bad times? So the first example we have in Scripture is the story of Job. The most uh, the next example we have in Scripture, if you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is talking about his life as a missionary. And uh, in Second uh, the, the Apostle Paul had a difficult relationship with, With the Church of Corinth. You know, sometimes pastors don't always see eye to eye with their churches, okay? And Paul had had a troubled relationship with the Church of Corinth. He wrote the church three letters, we only have two of them today, but he references a third letter in the beginning of 2 Corinthians. And when he wrote the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul is having to justify his apostleship to them. And he's having to justify the fact that you need to listen to me as an apostle, and he's justifying why he's an apostle. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks there about, in verse 2, he says, I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. And he's permitted. God reveals things to him there. Paul is talking about an ecstatic experience with God that he went through. But then he goes on to say at the bottom in verse 7, he says, uh, 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7, he says, Considering the exceptional character of the revelations, Therefore, to keep me from being too proud, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too proud. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And we often ask ourselves, what was this thorn in the flesh that the Apostle Paul had? And even in Western society, people who are not Christians talk about a thorn in the flesh. Well, Paul explains what that thorn in the flesh was. He says, a thorn was given me in the flesh. And the next phrase is, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And that messenger, if you've got your Strong's Concordance on your iPhone, press that word messenger and it will tell you that the word Paul writes there is angelos. That's the word angel. So Paul says, to keep me from being too proud, God gave me a thorn in the flesh, an angel of Satan to torment me. And three times I pleaded with God, says the Apostle Paul, that God would remove it from me, but God refused. It appears in the life of the Apostle Paul, a brilliant scholar, that to enable, in order to keep Paul dependent upon God and to prevent him from ministering in his own strength and becoming proud in his own ideas, God allowed an angel of Satan to torment Paul throughout his ministry in order that Paul might daily realize his dependence upon God. We don't think of the Apostle Paul as being a man experiencing demonization, but this is what it appears from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the literal interpretation of what Paul says there. If you turn then to Matthew chapter 16, you have another famous example of a disciple of Jesus Christ uh, who allows Satan to gain temporary control of his faculties. Matthew chapter 16, and this is uh, the turning point of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13 Jesus says to the disciples, who do men say that I am? And the disciples say, well, some say that you're Elijah, some say that you're one of the prophets to come, one of the, well, you are the prophet who is to come, referencing Deuteronomy 18, and some of them say that you're John the Baptist returned from the dead. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Then Matthew 16, 16, it says, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so Peter, God, Jesus, um, Jesus, uh, affirms that this is a revelation of God to Peter. But then just a few verses later, Jesus says that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, be handed over to the Gentiles, and be crucified, and rise again on the third day. And Peter says, it says Peter rebuked him, and said, Lord, uh, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turns to Peter, and those famous words he says there in Matthew 16, verse 23, it says, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. See, Peter, there is no evidence that Peter was possessed by Satan. But Jesus had just taught the disciples that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem and be handed over to the Gentiles and be crucified and, and die and raised again on the third day. And Peter directly says, no, Lord, this is not going to happen to you. The lesson we learn from this is very simple. When we contradict a plain teaching of Jesus Christ, we are allowing Satan to speak through us. Just as Peter, when he contradicted the plain teachings of Jesus about his passion in Jerusalem, uh, Jesus recognized this was not Peter speaking, but this was uh, Satan speaking through Peter. We are to be very careful when we give counsel to people, when we say this is what Jesus would have us do, we need to be very careful, as followers of Jesus, that we do not directly contradict the plain teachings of Jesus. Because if we do, there is a possibility, as we see in this story here, that we are allowing Satan temporarily to speak through us. The most famous example, though, of someone who was demon possessed among the disciples is in John chapter six and verse seventeen. Turn there in your Bibles, John six and verse seventeen. And uh, this is um, the passage where Jesus says to the crowds, um, if you want to have eternal life, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And many of the people are horrified at this seemingly seeming reference to cannibalism, which, of course, it wasn't. But in verse 66 of John 6, because of Jesus' sayings, it says, because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. Verse 67, so Jesus asked the 12, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of Israel, or the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He was speaking of Judas Iscariot. And literally, Jesus says, yet into one of you is a diabolos. We get the word diabolical from that. Jesus talks about Judas Iscariot, and he says, into you is a diabolos. Judas Iscariot, there is a devil or a demon living within you. And for the next three and a half years, Judas Iscariot served as the treasurer for the disciples. Now, when Illinois Conference elects a treasurer, do they elect someone who is of um, low public reputation or someone of impeccable reputation? Impeccable. And when you elect a treasurer in this church here, do you not look not so much for technical skills, but character and confidentiality? So the fact that Judas was the treasurer for the disciples, even when Matthew was a disciple, Matthew was a tax collector, that's the modern equivalent of a CPA or an IRS agent. If you had a CPA or an IRS agent in your church, the chances are you may elect that person treasurer. But the disciples didn't ask Matthew to become the treasurer, they asked Judas. Judas which tells us that Judas was exceedingly well thought of by the other disciples. And for three and a half years, Judas, though possessed by a demon, was the treasurer for the disciples. You may say there that it's possible to be a conference treasurer and to be, have a demon living within you. I'm not making any comments here about any conference treasurers. I'm just saying it's theoretically possible, you understand. If you turn to John 13, at the end of the Gospel of John... And Jesus uh, is talking about, one of you is going to betray me. And finally, he comes to Judas in John chapter 13. And uh, it says there in John chapter 13, verse 26, halfway through, it says, So when Jesus had dipped the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. After he received the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. And then it's says Judas left, and, then, and it says, and it was Night. Just as Nicodemus came at midnight to Jesus, the light of the world, to find salvation, so Judas leaves the presence of Jesus, the light of the world, and he goes out into the streets where there is darkness or outer darkness, and it says Satan entered into him. And we ask ourselves, why did Jesus never deliver Judas? Why did Jesus deliver a little boy who seemingly had epilepsy? Why did Jesus never fail to cast out a demon but why did Jesus never deliver Judas, even for three and a half years? And Jesus knew at the beginning of his ministry in John 6, he says, into one of you is a diabolos, into one of you is a demon. And he says he was speaking about Judas Iscariot. Well, it seems that Judas never asked for deliverance. That Judas maybe knew he was possessed by a demon. He lived a double life, when Mary Magdalene put the The ointment on Jesus' feet. He says, Why was this money not sold and this ointment not sold and the money given to the poor? And John records he said this even though he was stealing from the the common purse. So Judas knew that he was living a double life. But Judas never asked for deliverance. And so Jesus never delivered him. But there is no story in the Gospels of anybody asking for deliverance and Jesus ever failing to deliver them. Jesus never failed to deliver someone who asked him for deliverance. And Judas never asked, and therefore he was never delivered. So therefore, what do we practice from Scripture? Well, turn in your Bible to Matthew 6, 13. The first thing we say about deliverance from, from the reality of demonic harassment in the lives of Christians is found in Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> I'm saying these things to you this morning because... Um, I'm finding in my own life and ministry that more and more people, they're coming to me and saying, Pastor, I'm experiencing demonic harassment in my life. And I say to them, well, can you, let's go into a private place, let's talk about this. What exactly are you talking about? And then Adventists in good and regular standing, including well-known Adventists, are saying, when I go to bed at night, the bed levitates around the room with me on it. Or they say... When I go to bed at night, I hear the sound of a cockerel screaming in my room, and I turn the light on and there's nothing there. Or they say, um, when I come home at night, that the, the, the furniture is moving around, and sometimes things are thrown across the room at me, and I live alone in my house. These are, this is the reality of what's happening in my life. Uh, as people are coming and saying, Pastor, this is what's going on. How do I get deliverance from this? And I go through with people what's known as a deliverance questionnaire, and my intent is to find out where are all the entry points for Satan into your life. Uh, and that, that questionnaire is deeply personal. There are children here this morning. I won't go into all the topics that we cover. But we cover, you know, basic things like, have you played with a Ouija board? Have you had your, your horoscope drawn up? Do you ever have a visit someone who does tarot cards? Have you ever read the, the writings of Edgar Case, a well-known um, occultic writer? Uh, there's a whole variety of things we go through with people to identify where has Satan actually been given permission to enter your life. And this happens among many Adventists. And many Adventists, they come, up to, they come up to me and they say, Pastor, they say, this is what's happening in my life, but I don't want to talk about this with anybody because people will think I'm crazy. But this is what I'm living with, and I'm scared, and I don't know what to do with it. A young individual called me this, uh, this last week, um, who comes from another faith background, and... Uh, uh, within her faith background, uh, her parents are witches, and uh, she has been trying to deliver herself from the harassment of demons, and so they, they were gathering the urine of virgins and pouring it on her, and this is happening in the Midwest right now, and she's calling desperate for assistance. Now, by God's grace, this girl has been delivered just recently, but this is what she was doing in her desperation to get out of demonic harassment. So the first thing that Jesus says we are to do when we are facing the, 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 the harassment of Satan is found in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13. And this is from the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus says in Matthew 6 verse 13, he says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Is that what your Bible says? Deliver us from evil? Now, if, when, I say, when the Bible says deliver us from evil, we tend to think of evil as a generic the bad stuff happens to good people all the time. Having a road accident on the way home from church today, or maybe having a cancer diagnosis, or maybe your marriage falling apart, or losing your job and losing your home in a repossession. Uh, Jesus isn't talking about that, though. Literally, Jesus says, deliver and, but to, We are to pray, but deliver us from hoponiros, which means the evil one. Jesus doesn't say, deliver us from evil. We are to pray to God every day to deliver us from the evil one. Jesus is talking about our need to pray on a daily basis for deliverance from the attacks of Satan because by implication, we as his children are under a daily attack from Satan. And just as we are to pray two verses before, Jesus says we are to pray, Give us this day our bread for today. Most versions say, Give us this day our daily bread. Just as we need food on a daily basis in the Lord's Prayer, so we need deliverance from Satan's attacks on a daily basis within the Lord's Prayer. So if we are to follow the teachings of Jesus as the disciples of Jesus, we should be praying the Lord's Prayer every single morning, and we should be asking God that God will deliver us from the attacks of Satan because we cannot deliver ourselves from his attacks. We are helpless and hopeless before Satan, and when Jesus commands us to pray from deliverance, from the evil one. The evil one is pretty clear in Scripture. Revelation 12 and 1 Peter 5 identify the evil one as the devil, the ancient serpent of Eden, the dragon, the deceiver of the whole world, the roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, together with his fallen angels, otherwise known as demons. And we live this prayer. What do we do in partnership with God? We live this prayer. We put this prayer into practice when we cooperate with God in ridding our lives of anything that has a satanic influence. In the book of Acts chapter 19, when the people of Ephesus accepted the gospel, it says they gathered all their books on magic and they didn't just stick them in the basement. They gathered their books on magic and they put them in the public square where everybody could see this was a public repudiation of Satan and of witchcraft and they burnt those books and it gives the value of those books. It was many years' salaries worth, the value of those books, that they burnt. Not only were those Christians accepting Jesus Christ, but in the public square, like these days you might put it on Facebook, they were publicly repudiating any allegiance to Satan in their lives. We find in AFM with our missionaries in places like, um, well, this is screened online, so I won't mention those countries. We find with, with, with Buddhist ladies, with the Buddhist ladies, that when we start studying the scriptures with them, Buddhists tend to live in fear of the spirits. Even though Buddhism is classically a form of atheism, the Eightfold Path to Enlightenment, most Buddhists live in fear of the ancestral spirits. And if you go to a Thai restaurant here in Chicagoland and you look around the corner of that Thai restaurant, the chances are you'll see maybe a table with a little candle on it and maybe some milk or some rice or a little glass of Coca-Cola or something. You see this in most Thai restaurants. And what is that? It's not decoration. They are making sacrifices every day to appease the spirits. And it happens here in Chicagoland. And next time you order your Thai meal, look around, then you'll see a sacrifice to demons. And so when a a Buddhist lady encounters Jesus in Genesis chapter 3, that Jesus has the authority to crush the serpent on his head, and she, a Buddhist lady realizes that Jesus has the authority to deliver from Satan. What we're finding in AFM is that Buddhist ladies are asking for baptism within three or four Bible studies. We say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! you've got to wait on. You need to know about the Sabbath and you need to know about the 2300 days and all the rest of it. And they say, no. They say, for the Buddhist lady, baptism is not a matter of repentance from sin. For a Buddhist lady, baptism is an act of repudiation, an act of rejection, that I once was in Satan's kingdom, and now I've learned that there is a Savior, I'm now part of his kingdom. I don't know what all that means, all the details, but I know that it's good, and I want to be part of God's kingdom right now. And they don't want to suffer the harassment of demons, or of fallen angels, or ancestral spirits any longer. And so we're finding in AFM that Buddhist ladies are asking for baptism long before we in the West would ever consider them ready for baptism because they live with the reality of demonization day by day. And for them, baptism is an act of repudiation rather than an act of repentance. We live this prayer, deliver us from the evil one, when we clean our lives out of any demonic influence. And what do I mean by that? Well, um, uh, if you are a tourist and you go to Washington the chances are that you'll visit them mall. You'll start with the Lincoln Memorial at one end, and you take a look over to Arlington National Cemetery. Then you'll walk up to the Washington Monument, and then you'll walk up to the Houses of Congress, and you maybe visit the Smithsonian and the Air and Science Museum and the Holocaust Museum. And you walk around the back, and you come to the Supreme Court. And then you walk down Pennsylvania Avenue, and you come to a White House. And that's kind of your day of tourist stuff in Washington, D.C., That's what most tourists do. That's what I've done. I'm not interested in the Beltway. I'm just interested in the mall. It's a nice place to go. And any capital city in the world is like Washington. Every capital has that place that's on public display. But in any capital city of the world, you walk 100 yards off where the tourists go, and you come to the seediest side of human experience. When I was in Manila... And you don't have to walk more than 30 yards from the central plaza to find them offering infants to to Western tourists. You don't have to walk far in any major city today to come across the worst of man's inhumanity to man. In each of our lives, we have that mall area, that public space where we allow everybody else to be. Each of us has that public mall where we're happy for people to know this stuff about our lives, we're happy for people to discuss what this, these things that are going on in our lives. This is the, lot, the bit of me that's on public display. But each one of us has not just that area on public display, but each one of us has those back alleys in our lives that maybe we don't want people to know about. Those cherished sins, those hidden sins, those sins that we think nobody knows anything about. And it's in those back alleys of our lives that we find demonization most 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 often happens among nominally upright Christians now with the internet these days there's many things that you can look at violence for instance feeding your soul on the very things that Jesus died to save us from we need to think very carefully about what we feed our minds Jesus died to save us from the things that Western society gives us as entertainment. We need to think today, what are we feeding our minds? What are we allowing into our children's minds? What what are those back alleys in my life that I have yet to give over to the light of the world? Where he can enter and he can clean me up. We cooperate with God in this prayer, deliver us from evil, by inviting Jesus today, this morning not just into that public area of our life, the Facebook part of our life, but into the private parts of our lives where it's only us that really knows what's going on, things we don't even tell our spouses. And we ask Jesus today to clean us up. And we ask Jesus today to give us victory over those things because it's in those hidden areas of our lives that I find in my experience, it's in that hiddenness of our lives that Satan festers. The demons are allowed into Adventist lives because Adventists cherish private sins. The second thing we do, we are to pray, deliver us from the evil one on a daily basis, and we're to cooperate with God by cleaning up our lives. The second thing we are to do is to stand firm in the armor of God. And if you turn to our scripture reading uh, that we read this morning, Ephesians chapter 6, in Ephesians chapter 6, you will see there... (coughs) That, those famous verses, but there's a verb that is used repeatedly. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, put on the whole armor of God so that you may may be able to stand against the wiles of the animal. What is the, the wiles of the devil? What is the key verb he says? Put on the armor of God so that you may be able to what? Stand. The Apostle Paul doesn't say you're to charge off to look for demons under every rock. No, you are to put on the armor of God, then you are to stand. He goes on in verse 13. He says, Take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand on that evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Now, if you're in the infantry, like the Roman infantry, and your commanding officer tells you to stand still with your shield, you're essentially in a defensive posture, are you not? He's not telling you to advance. He's given you the shield of faith. And so the second thing we do, we are to pray daily for deliverance from, from the evil one, trusting that Jesus, who's never lost a battle with Satan, will deliver us, and we are to clean up our lives. The second thing we are to do is we are to stand in the armor of God. That is, we are to have the breastplate of righteousness. We are to have the helmet of salvation. Our feet are to be ready to share the gospel we have to put this into practice, and we're not going to dwell on the armor of God today. Time is too short. I'm going to talk about just one of the things there briefly. He says in verse 17, he so Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we say, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And if I were to say to you what is the Word of God, most of us would raise our Bibles. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying the Word of God is the written, printed Word of God, the New American or the New Revised or the New King James, whatever you happen to be using. See, there are two words for words in the New Testament. The most famous is logos. In the beginning was the logos, the logos to Theo, the word of God. Jesus is the logos of God, the the spoken word of God. A Word is an expression of... The the word is no different to the thought. Um, He is one with God. But this isn't the word that Paul is using here. He's using the word rhema, which means the spoken utterance. So Paul says... And take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the spoken utterance of God. Therefore, the sword of the Spirit is not the printed word which stays in my Bible. The sword of the Spirit is when I speak the word of God to somebody. When I actually articulate it. When I share a promise from Scripture, or a rebuke from Scripture, or a word of comfort or a word of rebuke to a a demon, that is the word of God that Paul is talking about, which is why in deliverance ministry, you're reading certain passages of scripture out loud because the demons cannot cope with hearing the word of God spoken out loud. Or if you engage in a deliverance session, you may have two or three people singing with you all the time, working their way through songs such as there is power in the blood, or hail the the power of Jesus' name, Christ the Lord is risen today. Songs that exalt the person of Jesus Christ, demons cannot bear to hear it. And so one of the things we are to do, says, says the Apostle Paul, is to have the sword of the Spirit in our lives, which is the spoken word of God. What does that mean in practice? It means that we actually know what the word of God is. And if you read your scriptures in the morning and you memorize one phrase, you will be surprised how often that one phrase comes to mind throughout your day. No matter what phrase it was, it will just appear almost incredible how whatever phrase you learnt in the morning, you will go through challenges in the day and God will bring to your mind that verse you memorized in the morning that directly relates to the challenges you're facing. By guarding God's words in our hearts and our minds, by Memorizing a psalm, or or even one beatitude, or a saying of Jesus, it means that when temptation comes our way, and temptation comes from Satan, we can actually rebuke Satan by speaking out the words that we've memorized from the Word of God. If you if you find it hard to memorize the scriptures, then learn scriptural songs. I used to work in Afghanistan, and as we were driving through the, the mountains, they would be stopped by young guys with guns and. These guys were high on marijuana and heroin, and they shot first, and they didn't ask questions later. And what I would do when I was facing this extreme stress, I went down to about 110 pounds, which was slightly less than I am today, just slightly. Um, it was my pre-marriage weight. I was skin and bone, but what kept me going was singing songs like, Wide, wide is the ocean, um, high as the heavens above, deep as the deeper sea is my saviour's love. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living no matter what men say. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It was the songs from kindergarten. I would sing them out loud in moments of extreme stress when we were being stopped by these um, uh, Afghani soldiers high on drugs who shot first, and they shot first many times. It was the songs from Scripture I learned as a child that got me through those stressful occasions. So if you find it hard to memorize Scripture... When you're facing temptations, learn some of the the Psalms in scriptures. Invest in in, in a CD or a book that that includes the Psalms put to music and learn them that way. You'd be surprised if you look at the number of songs that you have in your heart, how many of them are actually directly derived from scripture. And the third thing we are to do when we are confronted with, with the reality of demonization is we are to turn to God with fasting and prayer. Jesus commanded us to do this in Matthew chapter 17, the story of the young boy who was brought to Jesus, or to the disciples, and they couldn't cast out the spirit. Then Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, and he saw the crowds, and there was the father, and the father says, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Do you remember that story? And Jesus cast him out, and the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, why couldn't we cast out this demon? And Jesus says, well, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. Matthew chapter 17. Why is prayer? Why do prayer and fasting go side by side? Well, if you were to just do a mental calculation right now, how many hours do you, will you spend tomorrow on the preparation of food, the eating of food, the f- feeling of slightly kind of sleepy after the food, and the washing up the dishes after food? How many hours will you spend tomorrow related to food? And please don't say 10 hours, okay? Okay. <laughs> um, In my life, um, I guzzle food the same, you know, gasoline goes into a car. To me, food is kind of fuel. My wife often says, did you enjoy the meal? I have to remember because it disappeared so fast down my throat what it was I'd just eaten. If I can't remember, I have to look at my kids' plates to remind myself what it was. That's a confession, okay? I hope there's no guys in the room like that this morning. But think to yourself this morning, how many hours are you going to spend tomorrow on the food preparation, eating, and recovery? Probably at least three to four hours. Is that a, a small estimate? A reasonable estimate? Well, if you don't eat tomorrow, and you, that means you don't have to prepare any food, you don't have to wash the dishes. If you don't eat tomorrow, you've just carved out for yourself three or four hours, just like that, out of nowhere for prayer. And you haven't had to adjust anything of your schedule You haven't had to stop work or stop going to the beach or whatever it is you're going to do tomorrow. If you don't eat, you carve out hours and hours and hours of time just like that. So prayer and fasting go side by side. Once you start fasting, prayer is a natural filler of that time. Uh, The other thing about fasting is that 2 Corinthians 7 uh, verse 14, um, God promises Solomon at the dedication of the temple. He said, if my people who are called by my name when they're confessing their sins, if they confess their name... If they confess their sins, I will hear their prayer, and I'll forgive their sins, and God says, and I will heal the land, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 14. When we fast, fasting is a physical expression of an attitude that says, in my own strength, I cannot deal with this problem I'm facing right now, so I'm giving it to God for him to do in his strength what I cannot do in my strength. When I fast, I'm giving space for God to do what only God can do in my life. And I'm humbling myself before God and saying as a proud Westerner who is so independent and who never admits I'm wrong about anything, God, I don't know how to deal with this. So I'm going to pray and fast, and I'm going to pray and fast until you do what only you can do. Praying and fasting go side by side. And when Jesus commands us to pray and fast in the face of demonic harassment... It's because, humanly speaking, there is nothing we can do when we're faced with demonic attack. The only thing we can do is to turn our eyes to God and ask Him to be God and for, ask him to, be, to him to be sovereign in our lives. And so prayer and fasting go side by side. And if you're facing demonic harassment in your life, maybe gather some people around you who you know will be confidential, who will pray and fast for you. Maybe say to some people, And we're going to pray and fast for the next 10 days. Let's have a rota who's going to pray and fast on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and so forth. And so that you know during those 10 days that people are going to be praying and fasting for you. And a fast doesn't have to be no food or no drink. There are many kinds of fast in Scripture. There's the 40-day fast of Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. No food and no water. It's not really recommended. Then there's the Daniel's fast in Daniel chapter 1 where he ate only pulses and vegetables. He wasn't off food completely. Daniel chapter 10, he he avoid eating wine and and heavy meat for those three weeks. Another kind of fast, eating a simple diet. Um, Some people have rotational fast or they say, I'm going to fast from TV for 10 days because that feeds my spiritual appetite. But when you fast, you're humbling yourself before God and you're saying, God, I cannot deal with this problem. I'm placing it in your hands and I'm asking you to be glorified in this situation. I never ask God for a specific outcome because God's outcomes are always much greater than I can imagine. If I say, God, I need you to fix a problem in this way, it's not a good prayer because God can fix it in many ways, most of which are far better than I could possibly imagine or ask for. So when we pray and fast, we simply ask that God be glorified in that situation and we leave it up to God to determine what it means for him to be glorified in our lives. So what do we proclaim from Scripture? Well, the Scriptures teach that behind the scenes of earthly affairs, there are invisible supernatural forces for good and evil who are engaged in cosmic warfare for the allegiance and control of every human being, including each one of us here this morning. The Scriptures teach the existence of a literal personal devil, once called Lucifer, Isaiah 14, and now named Satan, that means the accuser, who was once the the highest ranked and most beautiful angel in all of heaven. The scriptures teach that Satan experienced a moral fall and took a third of all the angels with him in rebellion against God. And that at the conclusion of the first war in heaven, Satan was literally and physically ejected from heaven and eventually came down to planet earth. And as Revelation 12 says, woe unto the inhabitants of the earth, for Satan has come down among you with great wrath, knowing that his time is short." The scriptures teach that Satan and his fallen angels continue to this day in 2016 in waging ruthless war against the kingdom of God and against all that is good and worthwhile in our universe. The scriptures also teach that during earth's final days, Satan will send forth three demonic spirits who will delude and control the overwhelming majority of the people of this world to fight against the Lord Almighty and to persecute God's faithful people. Now, we as Adventists are familiar with the three angels of Revelation 14, are we not? The three angels, have, and their job is to call every nation, tribe, language, and people to worship God. But in Revelation 16, it says that in the final plagues, Satan sends out three fallen angels. They have the appearance of frogs, it says. And their job is not to gather the people to worship God, but their job is to gather the people of the world to battle against God And the verse goes on to say it calls it the Battle of Armageddon. So at the final stages of Earth's history, there is a profound spiritual struggle going on between the forces that God sends out and the demonic forces that Satan sends out. The scriptures teach that Satan will bring about an overwhelming delusion at the end of time to deceive, if possible, even the very elect of God and those who do not know the truth. But I misspoke there because the text in 2 Thessalonians doesn't say Those who do not know the truth. The text actually says those who do not love the truth. Satan will deceive those who not just. A, we must know the truth. The truth as it is in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We must not only know the truth, but we must love the truth. Do I love Jesus Christ? Do I love his teachings? Do I love to put his teachings into practice in my life? Satan knows all about Jesus, but he's lost. James chapter 3 says the demons believe in God and they shudder. If, if I believe that Jesus existed, it doesn't mean I'm saved. The question is, do I love the truth? That's the only way I'll be safe from that overwhelming delusion at the end of time. The scriptures teach that Satan, fallen angels um, tempt fallen humanity. They make attractive to us sins of commission and sins of omission. And the scriptures teach us that the forces of evil that weigh down humanity are so powerful that in in and of our own selves, in our own unaided humanity, we cannot hope to successfully withstand the forces of evil. The scriptures teach in the first Christmas story, the arrival of the kingdom of God set up a direct confrontation with the kingdom of Satan, and the forces of darkness have never been able to extinguish the light of the world. I love the first chapter of the Gospel of John. John 1 verse 5 says, And the light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness did not overwhelm it. And the verse does not say, and the light shone in the darkness. John says the light is shining in the darkness, which means that the light of Jesus still shines in the world today through you and me. And the second half of the verse says, and darkness did not overwhelm it. It tells us there is a struggle between light and dark, between good and evil. And though there is a struggle, and though Satan seems to be prevailing, the darkness will never overwhelm the light of the earth. And we today are the light of the world, are the disciples of Jesus Christ. The scriptures teach that First John three eight. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And in his first sermon of Nazareth, in Luke chapter four, Jesus declared that he had come to proclaim release to the captives, that is, to deliver the victims of satanic harassment and possession. And the scriptures teach that Jesus Christ never lost an encounter with Satan or one of his fallen angels. When there was war in heaven, which seems such an anomaly to us, but a contradiction there was war in heaven christ triumphed in that first heavenly war and was cast out. satan was cast out of heaven christ triumphed over, over satan in the wilderness and satan was forced to withdraw from the battle Christ triumphed over Satan's fallen angels while he was on earth. And the demons were cast out without fail. And Christ will triumph over Satan, the final conflict between good and evil. And Satan will be cast into the lake of fire to be eternally destroyed. When my little girl was three or four, uh, we used to read the Maxwell Bible stories in volume 10. The final, the penultimate story has a picture of Satan being cast into the lake of fire. Are you familiar with that, story, that little picture? In the last, the last chapter of the 10-volume Maxwell Bible studies. Bible stories. And there's a little picture of Satan being cast into the lake of fire. And my little three-year-old girl, that stuck in her mind. And every night when we kneel down for our evening worship, she would say, Dear God, she says, and throw David into the lake of fire, referring to her older brother. Now, thankfully, she's kind of grown up a bit from that kind of theology. And now she's a bit more merciful. Now she says, forgive him for his wickedness um, towards me. But when she was young, she'd pray that her little brother be cast into the lake of fire. And then, thankfully, she kind of understood a bit more about the need for forgiveness and mercy as she grew up. But the good news is, and this is good news, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire together with the forces of evil. I am grateful that God will take care of Satan once and for all at the end of time. I'm grateful that nobody else will ever have to say goodbye to a spouse who's died of cancer, who's lost a child to a drunk driver. I'm grateful that sin will be cut out of this universe and just as if you go in for a cancer surgery and, and they take out the cancer, nobody says to the doctor, well, what about the cancer cells? Don't they have a right to live? Shouldn't you put them somewhere in the hospital? No, nobody says that. We are grateful that the cancer cells were taken out and burnt in the incinerator. Isn't that right? We want nothing more to do with that which takes away life. And I'm grateful that at the end of time, evil will be destroyed and Satan and his fallen angels will be cast into the lake of fire. We don't hear much about these these days. But this is truly good news if you've suffered in life. The scriptures teach us the good news that Jesus Christ is the savior of mankind, Philippians 3.20. You see, Jesus was the most gifted human teacher ever to live, but he didn't come simply to teach. He came to save. It is precisely because the evil we experience today has a satanic origin that we cannot overcome it through better Christian education or more uh, complete parenting skills or carefully nuanced GC resolutions, or local church programs. Our greatest enemy is not ignorance, and our greatest need is not education. Our greatest enemy is not social injustice, and our greatest need is not social justice worries. Our greatest problem is not having an iPhone 5, and our greatest need is not having an iPhone 6. No. Our greatest problem is the reality of evil. A personal, malevolent evil being called Satan, and our greatest need is for a personal, loving Savior. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he invites you today to accept him as your Savior as well. The scriptures teach us say that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because he has been given all authority in heaven and earth, he is able there for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We serve a good Savior. As Christians, we turn our eyes to Jesus, for we know, what, we know not what else to do. And when we turn our eyes to Jesus Christ, we turn expecting Him to deliver us. Oh, my mind's gone blank. Where was I? We expect Him to deliver us, yes. I want to encourage you today. If you have sensed the attacks of Satan in your life, do not despair. But turn your eyes to Jesus. Gather around you a body of brothers and sisters who you know will pray and fast for you. Invite them to your house and have them walk through your house. Have them cast a fresh set of eyes over those tourist trinkets you brought back from overseas, over those videos and DVDs that are under your TV. And clean out your house of anything that would allow Satan into your home. I know from experience this is very hard to do. I've been with people who will say, I have these... One case, a gentleman with a, who suffered from obesity, he bought these self-hypnosis CDs, kind of giving himself positive messages. He used to play them while he was asleep. He paid a lot of money for those self-hypnosis CDs. And uh, after about a month of playing them, he used to wake up at night cursing Jesus violently. And so he invited me around and said, I have a problem. And we talked. I walked around the house. We quickly pinpointed what the problem was. We gathered the elders for a couple of days of prayer and fasting and Um, we said to this guy, you know, you need to get rid of those CDs. They were on his table. So you need to put them into the trash and we'll take them out, but you have to do it yourself. And for two days we sat there as this gentleman physically couldn't get it, couldn't actually lift up those CDs and put them in the trash. When you come across cases like this, you realize the hold that evil has on the human spirit and the human mind. And after two days, eventually he could pick up the courage to pick those things up and put them in the trash and the sense of relief in the room was palpable. These things are very real. As Christians, it is our birthright that we be free from the attacks of Satan. And as Christians, we should not be ashamed or afraid to talk about these things. Because the chances are there's people in this congregation here in Downers Grove who experience the attacks of Satan or demonization one way or another. Maybe a child who's now involved in wickercraft, wicker craft who's praying for the destruction of their Christian parent. Maybe that maybe at college many years ago, you took part in a drunken game with a tarot card or with a Ouija board. Or maybe somebody introduced you to levitation where you lift people up with your little finger and with a command. Whatever it was, there's a good chance somebody in this room here today has something from the occult in their past. And today is the day to ask God for forgiveness for that and to ask God to close off that avenue of Satan's attack so that Satan can no more use that entry point into your life to bring destruction and suffering. Don't pass along today and say, that stuff doesn't apply to me. This stuff absolutely does apply to us. And when when we engage in this kind of ministry, Satan attacks those who are closest to us and most precious to us. If you're engaged in a kind of deliverance ministry, Satan will attack your children. Satan will attack the children of pastors or the children of Elders or the children of Sabbath school teachers or the children of missionaries, if those missionaries or pastors or Sabbath school teachers or elders are active for God, Satan will attack those children. And often the children's bodies bear the scars of the the attacks that Satan would bring upon us. Missionary children experience all kinds of unexplained illnesses. Generally, I believe, because of Satan's attacks Just a few weeks ago, I received a call from a non-Adventist. She was begging for help. She would played around with the Ouija boards in her youth, and uh, some of the stuff that she'd done with the Ouija boards was coming back to haunt her. And she was a professional lady in the Berrien Springs area, not an Adventist. And it was a Thursday night. I said, yes, I'll visit you on Sabbath afternoon. So I started praying and fasting. And my prayer was not just that she be delivered, but my prayer was that God would protect my children. Because I know that Satan attacks my children whenever I'm involved in something like this. And so, on the Friday, I got a call from my son, who's 14. He said, Dad, I'm at school. Um, My friends are going in with their parents to South Bend. They want to buy some basketball shoes, which apparently are a big deal for teenage boys. We're going to buy some... My friend wants to buy some basketball shoes. He needs me to advise him on whether he needs to buy some Stefan Curry shoes or some LeBron James shoes or something like that. He says, we'll be back by 6 o'clock. And I said, that's fine. I know who the parents are. So um, I went out for a walk in the afternoon and I was praying, God, protect my family because I know that Satan's going to play games. My boy didn't get home at 6. He didn't get home at 7. 8 o'clock, he wasn't home. 9 o'clock, we were drawing the curtains. finally... At about ten o'clock he rolled up in a taxi. I said, Where were you? Why didn't you answer your phone? He said, Oh Dad, it's a long story, he said. Okay, it's a long story. He said, When we got there in the South Bend in the mall, we parked the car, we went into the mall, and about fifteen minutes later they called us on the PA system, the owner of a white car, they gave the number plate. Would you please come to the reception? And I went with the family I was with to the reception and They showed us on the the monitor and the security camera showed the car literally just exploded in the parking lot. It exploded, like in the movies. The windows blew out. um, uh, The flame started. There was a flame came up under the driver's column and the whole car just exploded. My phone, he says, I left my phone in the car. It was melted down. My textbook for my exam on Monday was melted down, which was great news as far as he was concerned. Um, All his clothes were gone. His, His shoes were gone. His school bag was gone. The car inside just melted down. All the plastic from the dashboard just melted down. And he said, uh, "You know, I'm sorry, Dad, but I couldn't answer your phone. My phone was destroyed. I'm sorry I'm home late." I said, "Well, son," I said, if, "If that had happened ten minutes before on the highway at 80 miles an hour, you and that family would probably have died. I'm just grateful that God answered my prayer. I'm not. I'm not worried that there was an explosion in the car." I'm just grateful that God got you out of the car before it happened. Uh, When you engage in the spiritual realities around us, that which most people think is a disaster, your car exploding, you actually see the hand of God protecting your loved ones in it. The following day, that lady was delivered from demonic harassment, and she's free to this day. We praise God for that. Satan attacks the children are those who are active for God. We must never forget that. So I want to close today by just reminding us that the gospel is not just a philosophy or an ethos. It is is God's way of delivering us from the power of Satan. Satan is real. His demons are real. And Satan's greatest desire is to see every one of us here destroyed for eternity. And that is why, as Christians, we do not not know what to do, and so we turn our eyes to you, O God. We ask him to deliver us. If, If the Holy Spirit has spoken to you this morning, if there are any back alleys in your life that even your spouse doesn't know about, then give those over to God today. Do not allow Satan to have entry points into your life, whether it's through your attitudes whether it's through um, a vengeful spirit that you're nursing towards somebody else, whether it's through watching pornography or violent movies or whatever else it is online, whatever your secret sin is, whatever you're cherishing in your heart that you want nobody else to know about, today is the day to give it over to God and ask God to fill you with his spirit and to bring into your life not the works of the flesh but the beautiful fruit of his spirit. It is our birthright as Christians that we be free from Satan's attacks. Do not live and think these things just happen all the time, and there's nothing you can do about it. We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living no matter what men say. He walks with us and he talks with us along life's narrow way. He is a good Savior, and he is our only Savior. So brothers and sisters, turn your eyes to Jesus today and see what he can do in your life for you.